This morning I want to speak to you about when believing is seeing. When believing is seeing. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. I'll be reading verses 13 to 35. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 24. I'll begin reading at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Heavenly Father, we pray that on this day you will open up our eyes so that we may see. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It was a beautiful Sunday morning. The sun was shining, the birds were singing a new song, the flowers were in full bloom. It's as if all of creation was poised to praise the Lord. Yet even though nature was ready to explode in celebration, there was a heavy sadness that seemed to permeate many of the people. Luke introduces us to two of those individuals. We are told that they came to Jerusalem for Passover. Passover was the highest holiday on the Jewish calendar. It was that week-long festivity that commemorated the great Exodus event where God delivered the forefathers from Egyptian captivity. Once and for all, he lifted them out of bondage and set them into freedom. 
And for years, every year, the Jewish people would gather in the sacred city of Jerusalem and they would have a a week-long party, worship service, celebration, all rolled up into one. These two weary travelers had gone to Passover. They had been there all week, but now Passover was over. They had to get back home. Luke says that they were on their way to Emmaus. These two friends probably were friends that could talk about anything. They could talk about sports and politics, the economy, even the late-breaking news, the gossip around town. They could speak about family issues, personal problems. There was nothing off the table when it came to what these two guys could talk about. Yet on this day, the subject matter of their conversation was rather sobering. They could not get the gory pictures of Jesus' crucifixion out of their mind. They had been there all week. They had witnessed everything. They had watched how one week earlier Jesus rode into town triumphant. As the crowd went ballistic and as they proclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds numbered in the thousands. They were waving palm branches. They took off their outer jackets, their cloaks. They laid them on the ground so that Jesus could have a holy processional all the way into the sacred city. There was such a frenzy, such an excitement, such a buzz. This Passover had the makings of being magnificent. Jesus had arrived and now Jesus, the rabbi from Galilee, maybe he was going to be uh, coronated as the king of all kings. And finally, once and for all, liberate Israel from the Roman authorities. These two weary travelers watched as Jesus made his way through the town all week long. They heard the stories. They knew that Jesus had been arrested in the garden late Thursday night. That the the soldiers, the temple guards, the Roman rulers, they came and, and brutally arrested Jesus and took him to the home of the high priest. They understood that Jesus stood before mock trials, an all-night barrage of allegations and interrogations. He stood before the longtime high priest Annas, the current day high priest Caiaphas, and even the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. And early the next morning, Jesus would stand before Pilate and Herod because Herod was in town for the week. And early on Friday morning, Herod and Pilate both said the same thing. We find no reason to execute this man. There's no good reason to put him to death. And this crowd that used to cry out Hosanna was now crying, crucify him, crucify him. And when Pilate persisted, why? What evil has this man done? They cried out all the more, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Everybody knew that Barabbas was a known thug. He was a criminal. He was a murderer. These two weary travelers watched as Jesus was handed over to be executed. They watched him as he rocked and reeled like a drunken man through the streets of Jerusalem. His eyes were swollen shut from where he'd been punched in the face. His lip was busted. Blood was all over the place from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. His flesh was ripped open from all the whippings. 
And Jesus stumbled and staggered with a cross beam strapped to his back. He made his way up the hill called Calvary. And there the Roman soldiers violently threw him to the ground, stretched his body across that wooden beam, nailed his hands and his feet to a cross of wood. With each swing of the hammer, there was agony that came out of his voice and it was visible as you watched his body contort in pain. They hoisted Jesus up into the air. When they dropped the cross into the hole in the ground, there was a jolt that violently shook his body. They shoved a crown of thorns on his forehead. Blood trickled down into his beard. One of the soldiers took a sword and pierced his side and blood and water flowed. These two weary travelers, they'd seen it all. They watched all week long. They stood from a distance for those six hours on that Friday and they watched how Jesus died. He writhed in pain. He gasped for breath. Darkness covered the entire hillside. It was that eerie darkness, the the darkness that could be felt. It was weird. It It was despair, death, cold. They heard Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. They heard Jesus about the noon hour cry out, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These two travelers did not know why Jesus, the holy rabbi, was God forsaken in that moment. If anybody should have been accompanied by God, it should have been that guy. He is a good guy. He is a holy rabbi. Yet in this moment, he feels God forsaken, forsaken by everybody. He's hanging there alone, even though he's in between two thieves. They're trying to put their mind around it. They're trying to grasp why was Jesus killed? They listened as Jesus hung on the cross and as he declared, it is finished. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. They watched how he breathed his last, bowed his head, closed his eyes and gave up the ghost. This one who had given life to so many, now his life was snuffed out from him. The one who helped so many was now hurt by so many. This one who spoke was now silent. And Jesus' dead, cold, lifeless body was taken down off the cross and placed into a borrowed tomb. They wrote a stone in front of it. They sealed the stone. In fact, the religious rulers went to Pontius Pilate and they said, we need for a few of your best soldiers to guard the tomb because that imposter said while he was still alive that on the third day he would be raised from the dead. And if some of his disciples come and steal his body, the second deception will be worse than the first. So Pontius Pilate obliged, gave two of his best soldiers They stood guard. These two weary travelers couldn't put sense around all of this experience. And on Friday, they grieved. Oh, did they grieve. And on Saturday, they grieved even more. This Passover week had so much promise. It started out so great. 
Jesus rode triumphantly into the city. They thought this was the time when everything was going to be changed. And Jesus died. And with him went the dream. They were as deflated as the unleavened bread they'd been eating all week long. And now it's Sunday. They've got to get back home. They've got to go to work. I mean, in the first century, you don't get a lot of vacation time. They had to take a week off to go to high holiday. They had to take a week off to go to Passover. So now the week has come and gone. Now it's time to get back home. They're on their way on the road to Emmaus. They've got to get back. They're just talking about the gory details and the pictures that are in their mind of the crucifixion of Jesus. I find it interesting that they uh, were going to Emmaus. Nobody knows with any certainty the exact location of Emmaus. Scholars and archaeologists, commentators, they squabble over three possible locations of where Emmaus would be. The only thing Luke tells us is that it's seven miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't tell us what direction. So people argue about which place is Emmaus. Nobody knows with any level of certainty the placement or the population or whether it's an agrarian society or whether it was known for commerce. Most people don't know much of anything about Emmaus. Yet this morning I can tell you this much. Emmaus is the place where sight is restored and the unbelievable becomes perceivable. That's Emmaus. Luke says that the resurrected Christ appeared beside these two weary travelers walking on the road to Emmaus. But they were kept from recognizing him. I've oftentimes wondered why. Why did they not recognize Jesus? They've been gawking at him and staring at him all week long. How could you miss him? Maybe the glorified body looks a little bit different than the earthly body. Maybe that's why they didn't recognize Jesus. Maybe in the retelling of the story, tears welled up in their eyes and it blurred their vision and they couldn't quite make out who this stranger was that was walking beside them. Or maybe they didn't recognize Jesus because they weren't looking for him. They weren't looking for a resurrected Christ. They knew that Jesus died and dead people don't come back to life, right? They weren't looking for him. Have you noticed in your life that if you actually look for Jesus, the chances that you're going to find Jesus grows exponentially? <laughs> and if you're not looking for the Lord, chances are you ain't going to find him even if he bumped into you and walked on the same road as you. Maybe they weren't even looking for him. But I think that fundamentally the reason they were kept from recognizing Jesus is because God had not restored their sight yet. They hadn't gotten to Emmaus yet. What's Emmaus? Emmaus is a place where sight is restored and the unbelievable becomes perceivable. That's Emmaus. Jesus engages them in conversation. Hey guys, what are y'all talking about? Uh, hello, are you the only visitor in all of Israel that hasn't been in Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have been going on over the last few days in the sacred city? And Jesus says, what things? I love Jesus. He is so awesome. Not only does he come beside and engage in conversation, but he kind of plays it along and leads the conversation. What things? Please tell me, pray tell, what's going on in Jerusalem? 
He said, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. You not heard of him? He's a powerful prophet, powerful in word and deed. Not just what he said, but what he did. Oh, he was powerful before God and before people. We had hoped that he was Messiah. We hoped he was the one who was going to come and redeem Israel. But some of our religious leaders handed him over to the Roman rulers and they, they executed him. We can't believe you don't know this. You haven't heard of this? It's the crucifixion of Jesus. And what's more, it's the third day. And some of our friends astounded us. This morning, we woke up and we got the report that some of the women had gone to the tomb, you know, to anoint the body for proper burial. They said that the stone was rolled away. They said angels were there, angels for crying out loud. And the angels said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. They came back and told some of our buddies, our companions, the disciples of Christ. A couple of those disciples made a mad dash to the tomb. They found it just as the women had foretold, but they didn't see any angels. And his body, they did not see. I think it's at this point that Jesus just stops dead in his tracks I think he kind of looks down to the ground and begins to kick the dirt. And he says, how hard of heart and slow to believe all the things the prophets have spoken. Did you not know that the Christ had to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Oh, my friend, that statement is pregnant with meaning. Jesus says, did you not know to the two weary travelers, did you not know that the Christ had to suffer? This one that you're waiting for, this Messiah, it is Jesus. He is the Christ. You and I both know because we said it time and time before that Christ is not the last name of Jesus as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. You don't find his phone number by looking in the Nazareth directory under the seas in hopes of finding Christ and then you find his phone number. No, Christ is not the last name. It is the title of who he is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is a sovereign savior of the universe. He is the only hope for mankind. He is the Christ. Did you not know, Jesus says, that the Christ had to suffer. When he says had to suffer, what he means is that Jesus had to suffer in this way. The had to suffer is a word that's understood and translated, it was necessary. It was an obligation. It was necessary. It was mandatory. He had to suffer in this way. The cross is not an afterthought of God. The cross was not a tragic accident that happened in the life of Jesus. The cross was by divine appointment. It was on purpose that Jesus went to the cross. He had to suffer in this way. The Bible is 
Not so much about the plan of salvation as it is about the man of salvation, Jesus the Christ. All the Bible points to the reality that Jesus had to die a substitutionary death in your place and in mine so he could die so you and I might live. He had to suffer. In the mind of God, the crucifixion of Jesus happened before Genesis 1-1. For John will write in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light in his mind, he'd already crucified Jesus. So that the crucifixion of Jesus is plan A and there ain't no plan B because God doesn't need a plan B. This is the only way for sinners to be saved through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Did you not know, Jesus said, that the Christ had to suffer these things before entering glory? We like a Christ of glory, don't we? But before you can get a Christ of glory, you gotta have a Christ of glory. Before he gets the crown, he's gotta go through the cross. Before there's celebration, there has to be some sadness. Before Jesus can go into glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he has to go through the way of the cross. Did you not know that the Christ had to suffer this way before entering glory? And then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus went through a seven-mile Bible study. Can you imagine being on the road to Emmaus with Jesus that day? Can you imagine being there? Jesus, the author of scripture, the subject of scripture, the object of scripture, he leads in a Bible study showing how all scripture concerns himself. Did you catch that? That all of scripture points to the reality of Jesus. He starts with Moses, he works his way through the prophets and he talks a seven mile Bible study. I don't know what Jesus said that day. But he may have said something like this. In Genesis, I am the creator. In Exodus, I am the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, I am the high priest. In Numbers, I am the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I am the lawgiver. Oh yes, Jesus says, I am the Christ. In Joshua, I'm the one who brings down the walls of Jericho. In Judges, I am the ruler of my people. In Ruth, I am the kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, I am the trusted prophet. In 1st and 2nd Kings, I am the king of all kings. In 1st and 2nd Chronicles, I am the sovereign one over the affairs of all the nations. Oh yes, Jesus says, I am the Christ. In Ezra, I am the holy scribe. In Nehemiah, I am the one who rebuilds broken walls. In Esther, I am Mordecai's courage. In Job, I'm the one who brings you through suffering. In the Psalms, I am the good shepherd. In the Proverbs, I am the voice of reason. In Ecclesiastes, I am the God of every time and every season. In the Song of Solomon, I am the lover of your soul. Oh yes, Jesus says, I am the Christ. In Isaiah, I am the Holy One of Israel. In Jeremiah, 
I am the balm of Gilead. In Lamentations, I am the tears of the prophet. In Ezekiel, I raise an army out of a valley of dry bones. In Daniel, I am the visitor in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, I am the faithful spouse. Oh yes, Jesus says, I am the Christ. In Joel, I'm the one to whom you must return. In Amos, I am the river of righteousness. In Obadiah, I am the Lord of the kingdom. In Jonah, I'm the God of second chances. In Micah, I require that you act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. In Nahum, I am your shield and I am your strength. In Habakkuk, I am the call of revival. In Zephaniah, I am the one who sings over you with rejoicing. In Haggai, I am the one who calls for the rebuilding of the temple. In Zechariah, I am the righteous one who rides into Jerusalem on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. In Malachi, I am the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. Oh yes, Jesus says, I am the Christ. Can you imagine being part of that seven mile Bible study? It's amazing, isn't it? To sit there and think of the learning that Jesus gave as he opened the scriptures to these two weary travelers. And time upon time upon time, he is saying, I am Christ. I am Christ. I am Christ. He gets to Emmaus. He's about to go further. He acts as if he's walking on. And they plead with him. They urge him. They're yearning for him to come and stay The day's almost over. It's dark. It's evening. Please come and stay with us. Jesus obliges. He goes into their home. They prepare a meal for him in good hospitality fashion. He sits down. He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it to those two weary travelers. And in that moment, their eyes were opened. In that moment, they realized this is the resurrected Jesus. This is the Lord. He is the fulfillment of all scripture. He died in my place. He came to give me eternal life and he rose from the dead to conquer the grave itself. This is the resurrected Lord. Now, how they realized this, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe these two guys were there that day when Jesus fed the multitudes with only a couple of fish And a few loaves of bread. Maybe they were in the crowd that day. And they watched how Jesus took the bread. He blessed it, broke it, and gave it out to everyone on the hillside. Or maybe they heard the story of what Jesus did just a few nights ago on Thursday evening. When he had the Passover meal with his disciples. And he took two very common elements, the bread and the cup. And with that bread, he identified himself. He says, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. Maybe as Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it, they realized, hey, he is the bread of life. He is the one upon whom we feast. He is the one that we have life eternal. He sustains us. He is bread of life. Regardless, their eyes were open. They were in Emmaus. Emmaus is a place where sight is restored and the unbelievable becomes perceivable. The resurrected Christ is in our house, they said. And as quickly as he appeared, that's how fast he vanished. Then they looked at each other. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us along the way? As he opened the scripture to us, 
When our heart's about to explode out of our chest, didn't we have heartburn? Not because of something we ate on Saturday night, but we had heartburn because we're in the presence of the Lord. Didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scripture to us and revealed his identity? They looked at each other and they said, we've got to go back to Jerusalem. We've got to jump back out and we've got to go the seven miles back to the sacred city of Jerusalem because we've got to tell people the tomb is empty. It may not sound like a big deal for them to travel seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell people that the tomb is empty. I mean, you, some of you traveled far more than seven miles to get here. You think, well, traveling seven miles, all you gotta do is get in your car, drive about seven minutes. For some of you, it's about three minutes, but it just take a few minutes and, and you'll get there. But keep in mind, in the first century, people didn't travel at night. It was far too dangerous. It was risky for them to go back out at night and to walk on foot seven miles from Emmaus to Jerusalem. They're taking their own life in their hands. They're risking it all. For what? For the reality that the tomb is empty. My friend, this begs the question, what are you willing to risk to tell other people that the tomb is empty? What are you willing to risk? That's an amen moment or an oh my moment. What are you willing to risk to lay on the line, to sacrifice to the Lord so you can tell people that the tomb is empty. These guys were willing to risk their very life. They said, it doesn't matter that it's late at night. It doesn't matter that it's seven miles. It doesn't matter that we may be jumped by thugs, robbed, beaten, or killed. It doesn't matter. We're going because our hearts are on fire. We're going because there's fire in our belly. We're going because we've met Jesus and he's changed everything. So we've got to go. They got up and they left. They made it back to Jerusalem. And there they caught up with the 11 and those that had gathered there. And they were already having a wonderful worship service. They were saying to each other, it's true, it's true, it's true. He's appeared to Simon, he's appeared to me. And then these two guys stepped up and said, can I give you a testimony? Well, let me just tell you, Jesus showed up to me in my neck of the woods. I was going from here to there. I was going to Emmaus and Jesus comes up, opens the scripture to us, goes into our house, sits and eats with us and our hearts are burning. My friends, you know this is a legitimate experience. You know it's legit. You know that they have experienced Christ and the reason you know it is because they had learning and yearning and burning, all three. You gotta have all three in order to experience Christ. Learning and yearning and burning. To experience Christ is not just learning. It's not just a check up from the neck up. It's not just you stuff your head with a bunch of facts. There is learning involved in being a follower of Christ, but that's not all there is. And it's not just yearning where you just sit there and say, I really want more of Jesus, but I ain't gonna do nothing about it. I want him to come into my house, but not be in charge of my home. So there's more than just yearning, wanting more than Jesus. And there's far more than just burning. It does include that, but it's more than just burning for following Jesus is more than just a feeling. It's more than just heat with no light. There is learning and yearning and burning. And these brothers had it all, didn't they? Jesus opened the scripture to them. They yearned for him. Please stay longer with us. We want more of you in our house, in our life. And did not our hearts burn within us when he was around us and walking with us along the way? 
My friends, I want for you an Emmaus experience. I want for you to have that learning and that yearning and that burning. I want for you to be in Emmaus, the place where sight is restored and the unbelievable becomes perceivable. And you know what I've experienced and what I've heard? That the same Jesus who showed up 2,000 years ago on the Emmaus road is the same Jesus who continues to show up on your road of life and my road of life. You may change the title of the road, but it's still Jesus who comes, engages us in conversation, and reveals his true identity. I want you to fast forward with me to the summer of 386. It's there when a man by the name of Aurelius Augustine encountered Jesus. He wrote in his journal that on this night, a light from heaven flooded my soul and the darkness of doubt was removed. What happened to Augustine? He met Jesus. He had an Emmaus experience. His sight was restored. The unbelievable became perceivable. Now fast forward with me to May the 24th, 17 and 38. It is a man by the name of John Wesley who writes in his journal that on this night, I very unwillingly went to the meeting at Aldersgate Street in London, England. Did you hear what he said? I went very unwillingly. There are a lot of people that go to church unwillingly, right? There was a time in your life, there was a time in my life when maybe you went unwillingly. Maybe you think your parents had a drug problem. They just drug you to church every time they had. And so, yes, he goes to church unwillingly. But he writes this in his journal. About a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I trusted Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation. And he took away my sin. And don't miss this next part. And he sparked an inextinguishable blaze inside of me. That, my friends, is an Emmaus experience. There is learning, there is yearning, there is burning. John Wesley says that Jesus came in about a quarter till nine. There was a, a strange warmth that came over my soul, in my heart. I asked Jesus to save me, and he did. And he sparked within me an inextinguishable blaze that cannot be snuffed out. I want you to fast forward with me to April the 15th, 1981. I was nearly seven years old. It was the spring of the year and I was watching a show with my parents about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Something happened that night. Something got very personal, got very real. What I was watching was not just something on a television screen, but what I was watching was something that was a depiction of what God had done for me in Christ. I didn't know much at seven. I don't know much at 42, but I definitely didn't know much at seven. But I knew this much. I was not perfect and I made mistakes. And I had a holy hunch I was going to continue to make mistakes. And there's a penalty for that making of mistakes. And somehow it became real. A light bulb went off. Sometimes I compare it to a lightning bolt. A light bulb went off in my mind that said, hey, he did this for me. It was for my sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That was not just a song. That was a testimony of my life. 
And I remember kneeling beside my bed with my mother and father flanking me, one on the right, one on the left. And on April the 15th, 1981, I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart, and he did. I asked him to be the Lord and Savior of my life, and he did. I asked him to be in charge, and he did. Fast forward to the summer of 1991, 10 years later. I was in church like John Wesley, very unwillingly. If I'd have been in this church, I'd been right up there on the shelf. As far up as I possibly could get, I would be way up there. That's where I would have been. And all of a sudden, my preacher stood up and he began to preach. You know where he preached from? He preached from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35, the very passage that I proclaimed to you this morning. And he talked about how to meet Christ. And he talked about it. And as he was opening the scripture, my heart was pounding out of my chest. I felt as if I had heartburn. The worst case of heartburn could ever be imagined. And I realized that God, who had saved me, was now calling me. He was bringing me back unto himself. He was calling me into ministry. And I could not get away from him. Oh, I tried. I tried to run. I tried to hide. I tried to get very far away. But I could not outrun the hound of heaven. He pursued me. He captured me. And he said, you know what? I'm going to call you to preach. And I went forward and I told my pastor, hey, God has called me to preach. As soon as I said it, I said, what did I just say? That I'm called to preach? Yeah. And from the very first moment, I knew this is why God had crafted me. This is why God had made me. He put fire, shut up in my bones. My heart was on fire for him. What I'm telling you is what God did for me on my Emmaus experience. He wants to do for you on your Emmaus experience. Maybe your Emmaus is on Pelham Parkway. Maybe your Emmaus is right here on Highway 31, but God wants to do something extraordinary in your life. And he wants he wants to meet you at Emmaus. Emmaus is the place where sight is restored. The unbelievable becomes perceivable. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ. You think to yourself, I got too much junk, too much baggage. How could he forgive me? Oh, my brother, sister. If the Lord can forgive me, he can forgive you. Maybe you're here today and this is your Emmaus road. It's brought you right here in this moment for you to declare Jesus is the Christ. Maybe you're here today and you have followed Christ, you a disciple of the Lord. But can we just be honest? Maybe your testimony would be that the inextinguishable blaze is diminished. It used to burn brighter. It used to be more passionate. But because of time, because of experience, because of negligence, that inextinguishable blaze, which still burns because it cannot be snuffed out, that inextinguishable blaze is not as bright, on fire, intense as it once was. Oh, my friend, if that's you, today is your Emmaus experience. Today, Jesus is speaking to you. Today, he's coming alongside you, engaging you in conversation. Today, he's saying, I want to restore your sight and I want to make the unbelievable perceivable. This much I know is true. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. This is my story.
And this is my song. So I'm going to praise my Savior all the day long. And I don't care what other people say. What I'm about to say, I believe from the bottom of my heart. And no one is ever going to change my mind on this. And what I believe is this. I serve a risen Savior. And he's in the world today. And I know that he is living. Whatever men may say, I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within this burning heart. Today, I want for you an Emmaus experience. What's Emmaus, you ask? It's a place where sight is restored. The unbelievable becomes perceivable. And maybe God has snuggled up right next to you in Christ, right here on Pelham Parkway, to say, I am the Christ. I am your Christ. Won't you let me in and let me set an inextinguishable blaze in you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation, Lord Jesus, if there's one here who does not know you as Savior, and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. If there's one here, and let's just be honest, the person just may be going through the motions of going to church. They come to church because it's Sunday. And Father, what we need more than anything else is just a, a, a swift revival in our spirit. And please fan into flame the inextinguishable blaze of our soul. Have your way in this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.